Well, thank you, uh, Jeanette, for your prayer. And once again, we welcome you to the Word this morning. Um, This is the last uh, message in the book of Jeremiah, although this could go on for a year. Uh, It's such a rich book. But um, I wanted to close today with Jeremiah's prayer in chapter 32. But in order to do that, uh, I want to uh, fill in a couple of gaps and uh, give you a little backstory to uh, where Jeremiah ends. He is uh, the weeping prophet. And he's the weeping prophet because uh, for 40 years, as he prophesied and preached to the nation of Judah, to the Israelites, uh, for 40 years, um, his words fell on deaf ears. And how many times did he say, the Lord wants to offer you grace and peace and shalom and hope, and over and over again you say no, no, and no. So uh, Jeremiah, about uh, 20 years into his ministry, uh, the um, Babylonians uh, besieged uh, Jerusalem. Now, this is not the judgment that we talked about last week. That came 10 years later. This happened in 597 B.C., and uh, uh, Israel was kind of getting cozy with Egypt, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, did not like that. So he was going to show them who was in charge. So they marched into Jerusalem. Uh, they basically raided the temple. They took all of the candlesticks and cups and gold and things from the temple, took that back. But what they really took back that was valuable was 10,000 prisoners, the brightest and the best that Israel had to offer, including, and this is where another story intersects, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And uh, they went back to Babylonia, and you know the story, at least some of you know the story of what happened uh, there. So then 10 years passed by, and uh, once again, uh, even though Jeremiah has been prophesying against the idolatry that they have faced and giving their hearts to different gods, to Baal, to the Babylonian god Marduk and all of that, still they fail and they say no to God. And so Jeremiah prophesies again, you know what, that was, that was one time, you're gonna, the next time is going to be even worse. And so in 587 B.C., um, once again, Nebuchadnezzar is very angry at uh, the uh, Israelites because they're once again cozying up to I- Egypt and uh, they march on and they besiege uh, Jerusalem once again. This time, however, they completely destroy the temple in 587 B.C. Everything is finished. And so Jeremiah continues to prophesy even after this. And uh, eventually he ends in chapter 51 that uh, these are the last words of Jeremiah and what he said. The last few chapters he starts prophesying against Babylonia, (laughs) which is a very dangerous business because Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world at that time. And so he preaches against Babylon and he says, listen, all these scrolls here in the last few chapters of Jeremiah are about Babylon. And he said, these scrolls that I've written, he said, I'm going to wrap those around a rock Tie that, tie, that, tie that rock to a piece of string, and I'm going to toss it into the Euphrates River. And exactly what happens to that rock is exactly what's going to happen to you in Babylon. And as you know, Nebuchadnezzar became a wild animal, and all kinds of crazy things happened. Daniel intersected, but all of that took place at the end of Jeremiah. And so we see our prophet weeping and standing before God, still standing. 
And one of the most beautiful parts of this story we find in chapter 32 in Jeremiah's prayer. And we're going to look at that uh, this morning. But first, let's uh, just ask the Lord to bless our time together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, today it seems like all of us and all of life is unsure and complicated. Everything seems so confusing. Everything seems so counter. Every once in a while, when I need order in my life, I drive 20 miles from our home to the north and west to Chase Field to watch the Diamondbacks play baseball. Now, that's not happening this year. At least there's not going to be any people in the stands. But you can still watch them on television. Their first game was Friday night, and uh, they're going to play a few games this year. But when I do go to Chase Field, for a few hours, I'm in a world that makes sense to me, that feels right to me, measured by my engineering, math, science brain. A world defined by exact measured lines and precise geometric patterns. Every motion on the field is graceful and poised. Sloppy behavior is not tolerated. Complex physical feats are carried out with immense skill. Errors are instantly detected and the consequences immediately experienced. Rule infractions are punished directly. And if it's bad enough, you're actually ejected from the game. Outstanding performances are recognized and applauded on the spot. When the game is over, everyone knows who won and everyone knows who lost. That's a world that I'm comfortable in. That's the world that makes sense to me. Uncertainty is banished. Everything is clear and obvious and fair unless you're the Houston Astros. And if you don't know about baseball, ask somebody. When the game is over, the world to which I return is not as tidy. Pandemics in our fifth month, racial conflict and inequity, political unrest, financial uncertainty. There's always this tension between the big kingdom, the kingdom of God that we live in as Christ followers, and the kingdom of man, the kingdom of the earth that we live in. There's this tension between grace and truth, between what's right and wrong. And I don't like that tension. I would much rather have everything neat and tidy like it is at Chase Field. So one of the great stories in the Bible is recorded in John chapter 8. And uh, Jesus was uh, teaching, and anytime Jesus started teaching, a group of people started gathering around him. And so a great group of people gathered around him. And then, as they did so often, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the religious scholars, came to try and confront Jesus with a reality. This time they came dragging a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now, you should ask the question, where was the guy? Well, in those days, usually the guy was, had no consequences whatsoever. So, this woman is dragged in front of Jesus. Everybody's watching. They plop her down on the ground. And they said, now, the Old Covenant tells us that we are supposed to stone her to death according to the Levitical law. What say you, Rabbi? And trying once again 
to trick Jesus. And so Jesus, not answering the question directly, he said, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, For those of you who are gathered here um, with a stone in your hand, the one who is without sin should actually cast the first stone and get this thing, get this party started. So what do you say we do that? And while he's doing this, he's writing something in the sand. We don't know what he's writing. It could be the names of their concubines. It could be any number of things. But the fact is, when they see him writing in the ground, and he makes that declaration, the one who is without sin cast the first stone, they begin kind of going like this, just kind of stepping away. And then everybody's gone, at least all of the accusers. The woman is still laying on the ground, tears on her face, Jesus bends over and says, where are those who condemn you? She said, Lord, they're nowhere to be found. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And then he said something very confusing. Go and sin no more. Okay, Jesus, which is it? Are we forgiven or are we still held accountable for our sin? They were confused, and it seems almost unfair, and, and like, well, shouldn't she have some consequences for her sin? And the grace side of Jesus is absolutely not. I'm taking care of the grace side of her sin. And yet at the same time, he speaks truth to her and says, you must not stay in this life. It's ambiguous. It's messy. It's complicated. And it's exhilarating. That's the kind of of life we find in the day of Jeremiah. It's a world that is very complicated and volatile and messy and unfair. God says, I am going to crush you because of your sinfulness because you constantly say no to me. And yet, I call you my bride. And yet, I call you, O virgin Israel. And yet I say, please come back to me. My arms are wide open. Come back to me. I want to give you grace and mercy. And you say to yourself, that's just not fair. Those people should be annihilated. Every one of them. No one should get a second chance. And yet God is constantly saying, but I want to grace you. I took the place for your sin when I died on the cross, Jesus would say. Jeremiah cried out, repent. Return, restore. For 40 years he prophesied against the gods of Baal and Asherah, against the Babylonian god Marduk. All of this he cried out, and yet the people just simply said, hey, listen, we're religious enough. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And we're, we're going to church, we're giving our tithe, we're doing our part, we're helping little ladies across the street, just leave us alone. All that other stuff about being completely committed to you. But there's so many cool gods out there. I mean, Baal is a really cool god, if you ever know anything about Baal. Asherah is a great god, because that means you can do anything you want sexually, right? And Marduk, the Babylonian god, oh, that guy was really sweet. I mean, there's all kinds of great gods out there. Why should we bind ourselves to one Jehovah God? But Jeremiah says, come back to me. God loves you. There's a new covenant. But Israel and Judah kept returning to what they knew. Egypt captivity, and bondage. How many times in our lives, even though we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, even though our lives have been saved, how many times do we return to the bondage of Egypt? 
We look over our shoulder and say, well, maybe we're missing something. The Israelites, when they crossed the Red Sea, they said, oh, wonderful, praise God, hallelujah, it's wonderful. Miriam's singing and dancing and Aaron and Moses and everybody's having a great time. And then about 20 minutes later, they say, uh, I sure could use some leeks and onions from Egypt, you know. I sure could use some, I sure would like to make some bricks with no straw again. That would be really fun. And these people were crazy. But they're constantly looking back. Now these people had been redeemed. Metaphorically, they had been redeemed. They had been saved through the Red Sea and through the desert for 40 years. They had been redeemed. They came to the promised land. They had been redeemed, but they kept looking over their shoulder to Egypt. When I was uh, growing up, uh, I grew up in a little church, a little community church in San Diego called Crest Community Church. Our pastor was Pastor Woodhouse. He was the one that married us uh, 50 years ago. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But um, in that little church, there were six of us boys that were in the sixth grade. And of course, we were raising all kinds of havoc. That's what sixth grade boys do. That's what you're genetically designed to do. And uh, so we did that. And we had this teacher. His name was Harry Lillibridge. Harry was a single uh, bachelor, a lifelong bachelor. Uh, had a decent job, lived by himself, didn't have any friends. Uh, and we didn't know any of that. We just knew he was our Sunday school teacher. And every Sunday, he would start the class with the prayer that I started today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That was from Psalm 19:14, directly quoting Psalm, David, uh, Psalm of David, Psalm 19:14. And then Harry Lilburge would teach our class. And at the end of the class, he would always give us an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Every single Sunday, you know, like, you know, if you were like, uh, you know, Larry the Sad Boy, you'd get saved every week. But I, I had a little more better theology than that. But the fact is, every week he gave an opportunity if you wanted to say yes to Jesus. Now, that was my sixth grade Sunday school experience. And I, I didn't really understand this man because he was kind of weird and odd and never did anything bad or anything but, uh, that, that we knew of. But he was just kind of this a loner type. Well, time passes. Years pass. I go to seminary, I come back, and I find, I read in the newspaper that uh, Harry Lillibridge passed away. And, uh, and it showed where he was in El Cajon, where he was going to have his little, their little ceremony. And I told Cherry, I said, you know what? He didn't have a lot of friends, and there's probably not going to be a lot of people there. I'm going to go to Harry's uh, funeral, uh, just because he had an influence, a good influence in my life. Now, the part I didn't know was that Harry was always a closet alcoholic. The reason he was alone all the time, he went to his job eight hours, but the rest of the time he was home alone drinking, except on Sunday when he would come and teach sixth grade boys. You know what? You say, well, that's really creepy. You know what? It's not. God uses broken vessels all the time. God uses broken people all the time. God used him in my life, even though he was a broken man. But here, here was the story of, of, of Harry's life. He was always looking back to Egypt. You know, maybe that... That next bottle of, um, of bourbon will somehow satisfy my soul. Maybe if I just drink enough till I black out, I won't realize how really broken my life is. Always looking back and hoping somehow Egypt will be real this time. Well, I went to Harry's service and um, no one was there. I was the only one. There was a, uh, you know, a paid guy that uh, did these kind of memorial services for people that didn't have anybody and 
Harry had no relatives, no anybody, and I was the only one there. And he said, uh, would you like to say something? I said, I guess I should. Nobody else is here. And, and so I just said that, hey, um, Harry made a difference in my life. He pointed me to Jesus. I know that, I didn't say this, but I, I know that Harry was always looking back to Egypt. He was always looking back and saying, maybe, maybe that's really what I need and what I want. This is what Israel did for 40 years. Always looking back to Egypt, looking forward to Babylon. Maybe Marduk is really going to make a difference in our lives where, where Baal and Asherah maybe failed. And, and Jehovah God, what do, we, what do we really do with him? We keep saying no to him. But maybe Marduk has something for us. Jeremiah warned them, there's distress and disaster on your heels. Babylon, the little kingdom, and they are tough, but constantly. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and what are they doing? They're making a golden idol. They're saying, Egypt is where we want to be. We want to go backwards because we're not quite sure that God knows who we are. And then on the heels of all this, is Jeremiah's prayer. Jeremiah's prayer. The prayer is uneven. It's mixed up because he's in an uneven, mixed up world. He basically says, listen, what I've said all along, there's God's way and there's my way. And so he opens his heart to the Father and he prays this incredible prayer in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 17 through 25. Listen to the words of this prayer. And you can listen to the angst and the sadness and the exhilaration all in the same prayer. He starts out, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show unfailing love to thousands, but you also bring the consequences of one generation's sin upon the next. You are the great and powerful God and Lord of heaven's armies. You have all wisdom and do great and mighty miracles. You see the conduct of all people and you give them what they deserve. See, he's, he's, he's struggling between this idea of grace and judgment. What do I do? You perform miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Things still remembered to this day. And you have continued to do great miracles in Israel. And all around the world you have made your name famous to this day. Jeremiah proclaims. And then verse 21. You brought Israel out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. And a strong hand and powerful arm. And with overwhelming terror. You gave the people of Israel this land that you had promised their ancestors long before. A land flowing with milk and honey. Our ancestors came and conquered it and lived in it. But they refused to obey you or follow your word. They have not done anything you commanded. That is why you have sent this terrible disaster upon them. See how the siege ramps have been built against the city walls. This is when Nebuchadnezzar is ready to uh, flatten the walls of Jerusalem. Through war, famine, and disease, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who will conquer it. Everything has happened just as you said. And yet, O sovereign Lord, you have told me to buy the field, paying good money for it because before these witnesses, even though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians. What an amazing prayer. 
God, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've preached my heart out. I've prophesied in your name. And yet these people still say no. Now, I just want to look at four parts to Jeremiah's amazing prayer. The first part is this. O sovereign Lord. It's translated, alas, or my God, a cry from the soul. In fact, four of Jeremiah's prayers in the 52 chapters of Jeremiah begin with, O or ah or alas. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child when he was just 16 years old. If you're like me, you're feeling some of this uh, pandemic fatigue. Some people are asking the question, why? All of us are asking the question, how long? Whenever Jeremiah had a crisis, he did not know what to do. The enemies were attacking, besieging twice. Babylon besieged Jerusalem. And his soul cried out to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what to do. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've prophesied in your name. I've preached my heart out. I've told the people. I've warned them. I don't know what to do. Have you ever felt that kind of pain? That kind of emptiness inside of you? Lord, I don't know what to do. I remember... Again, this is a, a tough memory for us, but when our son Tyler was, was uh, hit by an automobile riding a bicycle, he was in the ICU at the hospital, and most of our church was there at the hospital in the waiting rooms and spilling over and praying. And I remember the doctor finally had Sherry and I come into the, the, the room, and he was hooked up to all this stuff. I hate to even think about that. And, uh, and he said, listen, there's no, there's no brain activity here at all. And he said, I, I, I just think we need to pull the plug. And of course, Sherry and I had to make that decision. But I remember, like it was yesterday, leaning up against the wall of this room and crying out to God. Take me instead. This 10-year-old boy has got his whole life before him. Have you ever felt that, that cry of anguish that you don't know what to do? This is what Jeremiah was feeling. And God understood that and God allowed that. And God said, listen, I want you to know something. I'm here next to you. Listen to this in Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Do you hear that? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's God, I don't even know how to pray. The Spirit says, let me interpret for you. I'll tell the Father exactly what's on your heart. I'll tell the Father exactly what you're experiencing. Many prayers begin with a groan. My child is suffering, Lord, what do I do? And here's the promise of God. He hears you. He sees you. He knows you. And he's with you. That wonderful story we mentioned, I think, on a Wednesday talk a couple weeks ago, um, when Jesus was called back to Bethany when his friend Lazarus died. He went back and Mary and Martha were crying and the whole town was crying because this was a very well-loved uh, family in the city of Bethany, in the town of Bethany. And, uh, and so Jesus saw that. Now, Jesus knew 
what he was going to do in a few minutes. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But what did he do? The Bible says Jesus wept. Because in the moment, the people that he loved and cared for were brokenhearted, and he was brokenhearted with them. And he knew what was on the other side of it. Listen to this. God knows what's on the other side of your pain. God knows what miracle he's going to do on the other side of your pain. He knows what's going to happen on the other side of the pandemic. He knows what's going to happen on the other side of this racial injustice we're seeing. He knows that in the midst of that, he says, I'm with you. I'm near you. I'm not going anywhere. Oh, sovereign Lord, he prayed. The second part of this great prayer is this. Great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. God starts with God's mighty act of creation. You made the heavens and the earth. With a spoken word, with the wave of your hand, you created the heavens and the earth and all things in it. In the book of Romans chapter 1, Paul reminds us that we can actually know and discover God through the creation. God says, great, powerful are your works. Mighty is your hand of creation. There's a wonderful song that Sherry introduced me to a while back. It's called So Will I. And uh, I've asked Charlie to put together a a clip of that uh, song. And I want you to see it and listen to it. And especially listen to the words. So uh, let's take a look at this. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. With no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of life. As you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. And if the stars amaze and worship so loud, I can see your heart in nature. Every burning star signal fire grace And if creation sings or praises so you 
I hope you enjoyed that song. And you can listen to that. Uh, it's done by Hillsong. And you can listen to the whole song. But um, did you hear the words? L- listen, God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've made, every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. Isn't that a wonderful song? There's something about God's creation that just draws us near him. My wife, her number one pathway to God is through creation. She was, I mean, she was a Girl Scout till like she was 40 years old. No, that's not really true. But she, I mean, she loves creation. And, she lo- and there's something about knowing God and experiencing God through his creation. Now, the world wants to tell you that creation was all by accident. In fact, the Christian doctrine of creation stands against the philosophy of naturalism. Naturalism is the one dominant worldview of pagan culture back in Jeremiah's day, and it still remains today. And it's the belief... Notice the word belief, that nature is all there is. There is no God, no soul, and no spirit, only matter in motion. Now, since the days of Charles Darwin, naturalism has created its own creation story. Now, by the way, Charles Darwin, don't be too hard on him, uh, the theory of evolution. Uh, He always believed that was a theory. He never believed it was fact because he couldn't couldn't prove it. He always believed it. So don't be so hard on Charlie. You know, he, he was a... A good guy, right? But the Harvard paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson, George Gaylord Simpson, puts it like this: Man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him, God, in mind. In other words, the existence of human beings is an accident, the product of chance. Another critique of natu- uh, another critique of naturalism is the University of Berkeley professor Philip Johnson when he said. If the Bible is true, then God created mankind. If naturalism is true, then mankind created God. God is just make-believe. He does not actually exist. He's a product of the human mind. But God did create the universe. He spoke it into existence. And not just creation, but the other great act that he proclaimed, and Jeremiah talks about this, is redemption. So the Israelites came out of Egypt. They came through the Red Sea. They were redeemed. They were delivered. They were blessed. They received sweet water from the rock. They received manna from heaven, quails from heaven. All of these things were gracious gifts of God to a delivered and redeemed people. But they kept looking back to Egypt. They kept saying, it's not enough. Out of Egypt they came. And God said, I will deliver you. I will deliver you. We read uh, just, oh, maybe two weeks ago on my Wednesday talk, I read to you from 1 Peter, the words that Peter spoke that said, we are redeemed. This is how valuable we are. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. God not only created you, he formed you. Read Psalm 139. He also redeemed you. 
The word redeem means to buy back. He bought you back. He created you and he redeemed you. Sat so beautiful is this prayer. Mighty are your deeds. Great are your purposes in creation and redemption. The third part of Jeremiah's prayer is this. Jeremiah worships God for his glorious attributes, his omnipotence, his power. Jeremiah said, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Even loving these annoying people, these people who have had chance after chance after chance, even calling them virgin Israel after they have committed adulteries and idolatries, even loving them enough to say they are my bride and I love them, this kind of covenant love. He said, you show your unfailing love to thousands of people. Billions, we could say, since Jesus, right? This enormous love. Now, uh, Jeremiah echoes the second commandment in Exodus 20 when he praises God for his justice. He said, you bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children. Jeremiah 32, 18. And we know now that, that sin is passed on from generation to generation if it is not stopped by the power of God, right? You bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children. But Exodus 20 goes on. It says, that's not enough. Um, you, know, I, you know, the father's sins are passed on to the third and fourth generations. But listen to this, Exodus 26. But God will lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. God says, yes, this sin is great. Yes, this sin, you've not listened to me. Yes, you've said no. But all you have to do is say, yes, turn back to me. And I promise you, for a thousand generations, I will lavish my grace and my blessing upon you. Is that fair? Absolutely not. But it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. Jeremiah says, we praise you for your covenant love, your unconditional, eternal, vast love for your children. The last thing that we read in Jeremiah's prayer is this. Your eyes are open to the ways of men. God knows all things. He knows your heart. He knows the big picture. He knows that you're living in a little kingdom, but yet you want to be part of the big kingdom, the kingdom of God. He knows you from the beginning to the end. He knows you. He sees you. His eyes are upon you. There's this beautiful story in the New Testament. Um, uh, Jesus is, was invited to some Pharisee's home and he tried, they tried to cut him out of the herd so they didn't invite the disciples, just Jesus, so these Pharisees could uh, gang up on Jesus. And so they're out in this patio area having a beautiful lunch and, and uh, questioning Jesus. And then this, this woman who was a known prostitute uh, she was an expensive a concubine, obvious, apparently, because she carried this very expensive perfume, which was used by expensive concubines uh, to anoint uh, their, 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 the people that they're with. And so she came up, and while they're talking, she, comes, she bends over Jesus' feet, she pours this oil on his feet, and she begins to wash his feet. And of course, the Pharisees are in an uproar, and Jesus just blesses her. And this is what the Bible says, that Jesus... It's like, we don't know that he did this, but I can see him doing this. I can see him taking her face in his hands and just kind of lifting her face up because she wouldn't look at him. She just looked at his feet to look at him and I see you. 
It'd be the first man that's ever looked at her without lust. It'd be the first man that's ever looked at her as a, as a child, as, as, a, as a young woman, as someone who is valued by a holy God. I see you. I know you. There are so many times in Scripture where you feel like the Father is just taking you in His hands and He's putting His hands like you would with a little child, you know, when their kids were small. You, you want to make sure they want to listen to you. So you put your hands around their little face and look at me. Look at me, right? You look at, and, and hey, listen, listen, I love you. Daddy, Mommy, we, we, we don't want you ever to get hurt. We, we don't want you to do this activity or this behavior. We love you and we cherish you. That's what God does to his children. How many times did he do that to the Israelites? More importantly, how many times has he done that to you? When he's taken your face in his hands, he says, listen, my child, I love you. I adore you. You are everything to me. This is the prayer of Jeremiah. A cry from the soul. The purpose and deeds of God are great. His glorious attributes of covenant love and this idea that God sees you. He knows your name. He knows your pain, your circumstance, your dilemma. Jeremiah 32, 27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too hard for me? And the answer to that is absolutely no. And so then God, um, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, communicates these words to Jeremiah. And this is the beautiful part of the text. This is the restoration. Uh, No matter how many times the children failed him, no matter how many times you fail the Lord, he's always there with his hands wrapped around your face and saying, listen, I love you and I want to restore you to my heart. I want to restore you to my family. I want to restore you to that place of being, oh, virgin Israel. I want to restore you to being that bride of Christ. Listen to this promise of restoration. Chapter 32, begin at verse 36. Now I want to say something more about this city, Jeremiah says. You've been saying it will fall to the king of Babylon through war, famine, and disease. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will certainly bring my people back again from all the countries where I will scatter them in my fury. I will bring them back to this very city and let them leave and live in peace and safety. That didn't happen until 1948, right? They will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart. Isn't that beautiful? God says, I'll give you one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants, a thousand generations. And I will make them an everlasting covenant with them. Not an old covenant, a covenant that passes away, but a new covenant that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. And I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. Verse 40, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. Let me read that again. 
I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. I will find joy doing good for them and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land. Is that beautiful or what? Is that undeserved or what? Is that a promise of grace in spite of all of the truth that Jeremiah has spoken? God says, I will chase you down to the ends of the earth to show you my love. So we come to the end of our study of the weeping prophet. He's constantly calling God's people to come home, to come home to be restored, to come home to his purpose and his peace. Come home. So what happened to Jeremiah? We don't know for sure. Some traditions have him going to Egypt and being stoned to death. That probably would make sense, but we really don't know what happened to Jeremiah. We don't know for sure. My aunt, uh, my aunt Dorothy, used to always read these romance novels and then these murder mystery novels. And I remember asking her one time about her book. She said, well, you always know when you're at the end of a book when someone gets married or someone gets shot. Okay, and that's, that's how you know, right? But life seldom provides such definitive endings. Life is ambiguous. It's messy. There's a tension between grace and truth. There's a tension between the big kingdom and the little kingdom. We can't fix that tension. Faith is to live in that tension and to live in that moment. So Jeremiah ends inconclusively. We want to know the end, but there is no end. The last scene of Jeremiah's life shows him, as he had for so much of his life, preaching God's word to a contemptuous people, in this case, the people of Babylon. We want to know what happened. But he doesn't get married, and he doesn't get shot. In, the, in Egypt, the place he doesn't want to be, with people he doesn't want to be around, he continues, determined, faithful, magnificently courageous and trusting in the all-knowing, all-seeing, outrageously loving Jehovah God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jeremiah. We have learned so much from this prophet. But Father, the one thing that rings in my heart and in my soul is the courage that we have to stand in spite of anything that's going on around us, because of the the grace and the mercy of God, the omnipotent, all-powerful, seeing on the other side of disaster, God. In the meantime, God's promise is, I am with you. I will never leave you alone. Thank you, Father, for that truth. And thank you for this remarkable prophet and for all the truths that we have received in these past weeks. And thank you, Father, for the attentive spirit of each and every listener today to your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.